Welcome to everyone. Uh, anyone here for the very first time? Show of hands, please. Okay. Uh, how many people have been here through, uh, this is the third in a series of talks, certain, uh, um, how many people have been here for at least one of them, just a show of hands? Okay, good. Hold off for a few moments, please. Okay. The last uh, couple of talks, and for all of our sakes, I hope the last one of these three is tonight, uh, on King Donapaka, the King on the Donapaka Sutta, or uh, this one has it has different titles, but the one that many of us know it as is King Pasanati goes on a diet. Maybe that's why so many of you are coming back. <laughs> has nothing to do with okay. Uh, who knows? Maybe there's some. This will help you. I don't know. Uh, we could subtitle it "Eating Our Way to Liberation," but I think that might be a little bit overstated. Um, what I'm going to do is briefly. Well, the three are part of a theme that I've been developing really for about three years. Whenever I um, have given, uh, shared some stuff on Wednesdays, uh, it's had this underlying theme of a quiet passion, and the passion is for what? It's for a living, learning how to live, implying that perhaps there's a thing or two that we need to learn so that we can live, uh, and it's highly related, maybe inseparable, from self-knowing. That is, the degree to which we understand ourselves uh, is tremendously significant for all of us. Uh, putting it in a very... Uh, in a very blunt way, in my opinion. Uh, you can read all the books on Buddha Dharma that you like. If you don't get to understand your own mind, your own heart, and how you actually live, underscore actually, you won't know what the Buddha is really talking about. You'll have a lot of nice words about it. Uh, it's designed to get us to look at ourselves and to learn from what we see here not just on a cushion or at a meditation center, but throughout the day in whatever constitutes our life. Um, this is a very brief sutta, uh, just barely a page, and I feel there is quite a bit uh, that can be said about it. Uh, just for the people who are new, I'll read it. I'm going to go through it very, not in as great detail as I have been uh, doing it. Uh, so what these three talks are about is, is it, this is embedded in an ongoing theme. Learning how to live does include learning how to eat. It includes learning how to care for our body. 
etc. And I hope that has started to become clear, and perhaps tonight even a little bit more clear. Once when the Buddha was living at Savati, King Pasanadi of Kosala ate a whole bucket full of food and then approached the Buddha, engorged and panting, and sat down to one side. The Buddha, discerning that King Pasanadi was engorged and panting, took the occasion to utter this verse. When a person is constantly mindful and knows when enough food has been taken, all their afflictions become more slender. They age more gradually, protecting their lives. Uh, A little bit of uh, going over it and perhaps refining it a bit from last week. When a person, us, it's not about, it's about us. King Pasanati, I don't know if he was a real person or what. This is almost 3,000 years ago. And these are memories that were after the Buddha lived. This is not a tape recording, you know. So that's why it's very formulaic and nice and neat and tidy and, of course, brief. But um, the commentaries on it are not brief. There have been lots said about it, and so I'm just adding to the collection. Um, <clears throat> when a person, us, is constantly mindful. Uh, here, what I was trying to emphasize last week is that um, mindful isn't simply noticing what's happening Sometimes, if something is fleeting, then you notice it because you have no choice. It's there and then it's gone. Uh, and constantly means there's a sustained attention. It's a quality of attention that is able to flow with the event that's in question. Developing that ability for the attention to be unwavering. And that comes about through, our, through many of the techniques and forms, retreats and uh, those of you who are new, um, uh, that's what this center exists for, to help you learn some of those forms and techniques. But they're learned in order to enable us to be fit to really learn about ourselves, to see clearly, accurately how we actually live. Okay. Um, so this quality of seeing is crucial. Vipassana's insight, seeing into. And... Uh, the seeing is what liberates us because what we call insight or knowledge or wisdom comes out of a clear mind, out of a mind that sees accurately. Of course, most important what it sees accurately is that we see ourselves accurately. Right now, uh, you don't have to take this personally. Probably you don't, and I don't. Uh, we have all kinds of notions, images, conclusions, uh, other people's tales about who we are and what we are and what we used to be, scrapbooks about us, and we look back and, and who we're going to be and so forth. Um, as the mind, and this is something that can be learned, the mind can become accurate in its seeing more and more. It's like having a prescription when you didn't even know there was such a thing. You didn't even know you had poor poor sight. And then suddenly you think that's the way the world looks and somebody gives you a pair of glasses that are accurate, that fit your needs. And suddenly it's a different world altogether. And you can see clearly what's happening. But most important, because probably all of you have had lots of practice looking out there in in your line of work or your hobby or some art that you love. We've had a lot of experience looking at ourselves thinking about ourselves, maybe perhaps sometimes chronic introspection, that's useful too. 
but it's not analysis, it's not psychologizing, it's raw, naked, unbiased seeing. That's, the, that's what makes the difference, in my opinion. All, so many other adjunct practices, community, all kinds of things help us. And the teachings are designed to point us. But uh, this quality of seeing can only come about through trying to see, to pay attention. And then um, the attention can see when the attention itself is biased, when it's colored by something, an interpretation, uh, a uh, conclusion. You, you see that the mind is explaining it rather than seeing it. The mind see, is seeing whatever it's seeing or attending to it uh, in order to get somewhere else. It's a stepping stone. It's a means to an end. Whereas what the Buddha is talking about is the mindfulness that he's talking about has no purpose. It's not to get somewhere. It does take you somewhere. But if you're, if part of the mind is taken up with getting somewhere, then you're not fully present. You have some objective in mind down the road where this is going to go. Okay. So it's like, it's like a mirror. It's just attending, raw, naked, reflecting back as a good mirror does what's there. And if you recall, uh, I try to clarify the difference between mindfulness and uh, sati sampajanya. Sati is mindfulness. Sampajanya is sometimes called um, wisdom in action. Mindfulness simply is presence. It reminds you to turn towards whatever it is you've decided to turn towards. If mindfulness of breathing is to keep the breath in mind. Mindfulness of walking is to keep walking in mind. Mindfulness of eating is to keep eating in mind. And so forth. Uh, once you keep something in mind, then there's an alertness and a sensitivity which watches the behavior of what you're watching. And the learning comes out of that. You can see cause and effect. You can see uh, how the mind constructs wor- the wor- a world. And you can see it for yourself, how, how your mind constructs a world and our relationship to that construction. So... Uh, and we went into it even more detail. So that that's there. And knows when enough food has been taken. Well, this sounds like the greatest diet that's ever existed. I mean, just be mindful and we'll get down to our uh, normal weight. There's, uh, there are a lot of, there's so many diets now I mean, and books that are appropriate diet, our true diet, our true weight. America's, I forgot, there are a lot of slogans there and I can't keep up with them. So it has... This sounds like no will is needed or discipline or restraint. Just see. Pay attention while you eat. Pay attention while you eat, and you will lose weight. Well, there can be some truth in that. But uh, here, I would like to further elaborate. We went into this last week. Um, because people will pay attention and then say, uh, it's not necessarily just on eating, on anything. Uh, the quality of mindfulness varies. It's like anything else. The art of seeing refines itself in the process of being used, developed. See, we learn from mistakes if we're willing to, if we're humble enough to learn from our mistakes. Okay. So the seeing, as it gets refined, uh, in a sense gets deeper. Uh, and when something is sustained, that gives you the opportunity to see... Uh, more deeply into that which you are looking at, in addition to it being accurate, it's more vivid. And the quality of knowing, knowing here, 
would be what we call insight or wisdom. And what I was trying to say is that transformation of suffering that comes from uh, from this presence, from this awareness, uh, it's most powerful when it's bone deep. It's not just a glance. Oh, well, that's greed. And make a note about that. Greed, greed, gone. What's next? That's helpful to begin with. But it's seeing the mind uh, with with some sustained attention and the lessons which are present for all of us. Life is constantly teaching us, nonstop, 24-7. Uh, it's constantly teaching us, but no one's enrolled in the course, or very few of us are. So if you start paying attention, you can see that uh, the world... Uh, helps us get, the world exists in a way to help us get free. Because we're now learning how to relate to what happens to us from this perspective. Remember, this is a Buddhist meditation center. And so it's not a, a diet of reduction. It's not Weight Watchers. Uh, so of course there's a certain frame of reference. And the frame of reference is, uh, in addition to losing weight, is it possible that the activity of eating becomes a tool for our awakening as well? And we'll go into that uh, a little bit more tonight. We, I think we did some last week. Uh, bone deep means it's like getting a joke. Uh, in other words, we hear uh, attachment leads to suffering, and people go like this. Yeah, and you can reflect back to many examples when you held on to something that didn't want to be held on to because it's gone, and you suffered. Or you try to push something away. But it wasn't its time yet, and and we suffer. Okay, so so that's helpful. That kind of reflection, that kind of intelligent thinking about what we just heard. Let's say verbal teachings from a book, from a person. Uh, the kind of understanding that I'm talking about is when we we see it, and it, and the seeing is so intimate that we can't separate it from ourselves. It's being dharma. It's not that the Dharma is out there and we're over here. Oh, oh, I see. Attachment leads to suffering. We know it the way we know when we stick our hand in the fire and get burned. We don't need anyone to explain that to us. Okay. We do all kinds of emotional uh, activities which lead to suffering again and again and again, sometimes during the entire course of a lifetime. So why don't we learn? Why don't we change? Why don't we change dramatically? Uh, maybe the teachings are faulty. Maybe it's an exaggerated, uh, the promises that you'll get enlightenment or whatever you think that is. Maybe it's all nonsense. But it also maybe we have to do our share, which is to develop the abilities to really see. And in, out of the seeing comes a kind of learning that has nothing to do with ideas, although the ideas certainly played a role in getting you to do it. Explanations nicely put phrases and so forth. But finally, um, and in a community like here, Cambridge and Environs, if we can explain something and put it into nice words, it's like our job is done. And it's just beginning. It's like having a brilliant menu. You can't eat it. I guess all my metaphors are going to be on food tonight. <laughs> um, so there's something, it's intimate. The way, when you touch fire, and it burns. If you don't, if you need a second longer to prove it, okay. But you will get it. Now, 
at one point there's a sutta where the Buddha talks about the whole world is on fire. It's called a fire sermon. Now, he doesn't mean a nucle- it's pre-nuclear. What he means on fire with greed, hatred, delusion. So it's a strong metaphor, but to me it's a uh, it's useful one. And so um, the learning has to be deep enough to help us unlearn what clearly is unskillful. It's harmful to us. So I think uh, the Buddha is not making some, oh, just be mindful and then you lose all the weight you want to. Okay, now, I would qualify that a bit just from my own experience and uh, having taught eating meditation on retreats and so, so forth. Let's say the food is in front of you, or you can do it at home. Just set aside a meal and uh, be careful. That's, the ma- that's what you're doing. No other commitment, not socializing, and so forth. Uh, and sometimes when, if it's food that we like, we go at it in a ravenous way. We're almost out of control if we can't wait to get it. Let's say we're also hungry. Let's say it's comfort food that our mommy made for us when we were growing up. And uh, we're very, we've had a rough day. Uh, if you can pause and feel the breathing happen just for a few seconds, because that quality of mind is not going to be able to be mindful, because you're going to get lost in the food. Eat the breath for just a few breaths, and then pay attention. Now, as you start paying attention to actual eating, actual eating, it's not an idea. You, you put food in your mouth, you chew it. This is what eating med- mindfulness of eating meditation is. You chew it and you experience whatever is there. It's not an idea. But then the mind does start spinning out ideas about what's happening. I like it. I don't like it. This is better. I had this in that restaurant. It wasn't as good as that. The other, uh, my mother made it better, etc. Whatever it is. Okay. Uh, as we start chewing and watching that, and the life of the body, tastes, and the sensations of food, as we start becoming intimate with just the experience of eating, Sometimes people find that they don't want to eat as much. It's like they're eating the sensations. It, I would put it another way. We're feeling more alive. And it's something quite fulfilling. Fulfilling. There I go again. Anyway, uh, what happens is somehow uh, the mind gets a certain nourishment, which is very satisfying. And so you may find that happens. But uh, eating is a challenge. And I think we put it in a frame of reference of skillful and unskillful. That is, if you have a good reason to lose weight, sometimes it's life and death. It could be diabetes. It could be a heart conditioning. It could be uh, overweight, which has very, very serious possibilities. If there's strong motivation, then that can contribute to it. And then if the awareness that you've been developing, not just in eating, but just through practicing here, there, and everywhere, uh, when that combination of conditions comes together, uh, sometimes it's a lot easier uh, to eat in a reasonable way, where some degree of understanding comes together with uh, understanding that how important this is. And then those times when we violate it and we just gorge ourselves like the king, then watch what happens. How does it feel to be... Uh, tremendously uh, stuffed. Learn from that. That's what I meant by learn it. Teaching is happening all the time. You, you can't breathe as well. You start falling. You have to go out and lie down on the couch because you can't stay awake. On retreats, it's notorious. The first sitting after 
lunch, even the second one sometimes. So people, then a typical question, especially for people who are new, I seem to be falling asleep. Uh, yeah, how about eating less? Okay. Uh, sometimes it's as simple as that, not always. Okay. Um, and knows when enough food has been taken. Now, I mentioned that I, I've had a fair amount of yoga training some years ago, and we were trained to pay attention to uh, fill up fill, when you feel half full, a quarter uh, of the of the of, of the stomach is got liquids and another quarter empty. That was set up as an ideal as to how you should do it, and there are many ideals that are in all spiritual teachings. But what I found that in the long run, that's helpful to begin with. It's by really listening to the intelligence of the body. The body will tell you. And sometimes you may need to eat a little more than half. I found that. And not out of greed. But maybe you've just done something vigorous and you're really more tired. And a mechanical formula like half, a quarter, a quarter, I found was a very crude guideline. And what was much more reliable was our own sensitivity, which becomes more developed if you use it. You understand? What I, it's just the intimate, direct, first-hand, when you start getting to know your body again, maybe for the first time. And the body has an intelligence and the information as to what is needed now, right here and what now, uh, you can learn to, for that to be received you know, and, and then acted upon. And then sometimes our understanding is very clear. We know I've had enough. And yet there's something in us that says, no, you haven't. You, if you don't get another, it's so delicious. And you're a little lonely. And you're a little sad. Just have a bit more. And because if you don't, uh, how can you even live? You know, the imagination of being deprived of something you love. Like I've told you in my case, it was corn muffins or rice pudding. And, they would, if I, and I would not eat it and watch. And it was as if the world... Nothing in the world mattered but except me getting my corn muffin. Well, it's ridiculous. <laughs> but if you sit with that, you start to see how the mind can get hysterical about anything. And then a little bit of reflection is, it's just a, can't say the word, corn muffin. <laughs> um, so it's learning. This is what I mean by learning how to live. And you learn how to live by living and letting and but you have to be receptive and allow life. The life is giving is teaching. Here's something from a teacher who has influenced uh, many of the West, us Western teachers, uh, and certainly Michael and Ryan and myself. Um, Ajahn Chah, Thai forest master. Uh, Pindapat is. Uh, uh, every day the, the monks go out on alms round. It's not, it's not begging. Uh, sometimes that's translated as begging. It's not at all. It's very, very different. But for right now, uh, the monks are dependent on lay people feeding them every day. There's one meal a day. And we'll go into that. Uh, and you go through the village and people have been educated for thousands of years. First of all, they enjoy doing it. They feel it's good for them to, to practice generosity. And then you receive. And one main way is you just take whatever is put into your bowl. Okay, so here's Ajahn Chah. Some days I'd go on an alms round, let's just call it, and get nothing but plain rice. I did this for a while, and some days you do get nothing but plain rice. 
I think, and if you were health conscious as I was, it's not even brown rice and it's not even organic. <laughs> How dare they? Don't they know that I, you know, all right. I travel all this way and, and you can't even give me some organic brown rice? Short grain? Okay. Nothing but plain rice. I'd think, quote, if only I had some salt. This is Ajahn Chah. I'm adding a little bit of dramatic flourish. It was interesting to watch my mind while I ate. Who would imagine you could develop wisdom from eating plain rice? Because what he saw is how, how, uh, how suffering comes about. Now, you can't stop the mind, if you do, you're getting in a war with yourself, from wanting the salt. But what you can do is see it. And then typically you see it and it's over. Especially as the seeing becomes uh, pure, steady, unwavering, sustained. And the problem is over. This is what you have today. Rice without salt. So when you suffer, see, everything can be used to learn. Let's say you grasp onto it and you start, the mind starts obsessing about uh, no salt, just white rice. What, what they don't treat us well. Why would we even stay in the, take care of these people in this village? You can see the mind making suffering for itself. And so that can either be a waste of time where you say, oh, my meditation is no good, or that is where the wisdom grows out of that. It's up to us. It's how we take our life experience. And so even if you make a fool out of yourself or make a mistake, it's not over. It, the real question is, are you willing to learn from your mistakes? It's very, very important to be able to do that. You know, there was a, uh, written up in, uh, a long time ago, like, so don't hold me to all the details. There's some surgeon, brain surgeon in California, who's considered one of the best in the world, and so he gets a tremendous number of um, <clears throat> of uh, medical students who want to, residents and interns who want to study with him, and they all have top grades and they come from good schools, etc. And so how does he decide? And what he said was, um, I asked him questions like, um, do you... Uh, do you ever have you ever made mistakes in working with a patient? If the person says no, I don't even bother to read any further. That's it. And then I say, what what did you do when you made a mistake? Uh, and depending on their answer, he would get most of them got ri- he would get rid of the people who said it. Of course, I make mistakes, and I try my best to learn from the mistakes. That that's helped him select who he would work with. Now, when it comes to wisdom, so much wisdom comes out of foolishness. So let's be thankful for how foolish we are because without it, we'd just be complacent fools. But it's possible to go beyond that. Okay, let's see what this king uh, is up to. So, uh, and these are, oh, and here's what the Buddha is saying. When a person is constantly mindful and knows when enough food has been taken, all their afflictions become more slender. This is a very, very important sentence. They age more gradually, protecting their lives. Hmm. Afflictions, uh, on one level, it might be digestive order, a disorder, it might be the health of the body, obvious afflictions that come from overeating. Uh, but this is, the, the Buddha would always, would, you very often would teach on many levels. So on one level, 
uh, the affliction, that, those are the kilesas, greed, hatred, and delusion. The tendency of the mind to ins- incessantly want, 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 never satisfied. I prefer the wanting mind to greed that's become a little bit moralistic. It's not to look at it as if I'm a bad person because I'm greedy. It's to understand what that activity is like for us. That mind that is always wanting, somehow it's never satisfied. Or not wanting, aversive. This food, it's not worthy of me. I can't eat this. Uh, and then, of course, the, the uh, delusion or ignorance where the mind is not clear and it thinks that the more it gets of something, the happier it will be. Or if it can only get rid of X, Y, or Z, it will be happy. And that's, of course, the root of the kalesas are uh, toxins. They're mental toxins. Now, uh, many of you, I don't see how you can live in this area and not hear about detoxification programs and go to Whole Foods and health food stores. A growing proliferation of detoxification. We have to clean ourselves. And there's some good sense in it. So uh, the toxins in the, in the, in the body uh, are deleterious. They uh, work against bodily health. And so cleaning them out is actually a sensible thing to do, and there are many, many ways to do that. When you now go to a more subtle level, where the uh, toxins are not just uh, literally uh, bodily toxins in the bloodstream, but they're mind toxins, this tendency of the mind to want, 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 or not want, not want, not want, or to be confused, dull, uh, ambivalent, and so forth, how do we clean that out? And, of course, that's what the practice is about. Sometimes liberation is defined as freedom from the the kalesas. It's not that they don't happen, but they don't control us anymore. But they've lost their compelling nature, the hold that they have over us, where the mind just says, get that, and we go right into action. Get rid of that, and we go right into action. And we think we're doing it. And as you start looking, you'll see that we're enslaved to our own productions. And as you, that's self-knowing. That's how you free yourself, is through seeing how you've enslaved yourself. Everything happens here and now in this practice. It's about me. It's about you. It's not going to be solved over there. So practice is about you coming to terms with yourself as you are, moment by moment. So again, the Buddha is teaching this king. Let's assume the king, I think, we can interpret it that he did get it on more than one level. But who knows? I mean, it's, you know... I wouldn't have a talk if I had, you know, there's not much here. So I have to. Uh, so he says, and their afflictions become more slender. Again, the Buddha is on a number of levels. Slender here is a physical weight, the weight of the body. It become thinner. And, it, because the, uh, and slender here is also means that the, uh, the kalesas become more slender. They start thinning out. And so, at the same time, is it, it's possible, at the same time that you're caring for the body, if you put it in the frame of reference of wisdom, you can also wise up. In fact, then the wisdom perspective, if the mind is fit to, so that it can be implemented, in the process of losing weight, you also wise up a bit. And wisdom can be a powerful help in living. Otherwise, what's, that's what it's about. Wisdom is the art of living. Eating is one kind 
of living. It's an important part of our living. We have to learn how to use that energy. So much of our problem is we simply don't know how to use the beautiful things that make up life. There's nothing wrong with sex or money or food. It's just that we don't know how to use that energy. So we suffer typically from either too much or not enough or uh, some deranged relationship to it. Wisdom is starting to respect the energies that make up life. This is what life is made up of. And learning how to use them skillfully and seeing when it's unskillful, unlearning what seems to produce dukkha or suffering. And remember, the Buddha is saying, all I'm teaching is suffering, the end of suffering. So this sutta, in its own small way, is trying to help us suffer less. Do we suffer around food? I think so. At least some of us do. Okay. And then he's, <clears throat> then this, uh, then the, the last line of the Buddha, they, uh, I'll give you more continuity. When a person is constantly mindful and knows when enough food has been taken, all their afflictions become more slender. They age more gradually, protecting their lives. Here, that, some of that's obvious, that, uh, and even we have research. That there's, a, it's not, there's a higher probability that you'll live longer, uh, and it's to some degree correlated with weight. So, okay, fine. But there's something else that's going on here. Um, here we get at the different levels at which uh, education, re, our own self-re-education, in this case applied to eating, uh, comes into play. Um, if you, uh, the Buddha was big, also big on uh, talking about aging, sickness, and death. And those of you who come to the center, you know I teach that until you're ready to go. To it. it makes you older and sicker, and you just to shut me up, you'd leave the planet. Uh, it's central, and it's part of life. It's not out there somewhere. It's part of life. But it's taught in such a way as to help us get our priorities. It's not about life after death. It's about is there life before death. So, uh, and when we start to realize that it's inevitable that we must age, it's inevitable that we grow ill, and it's inevitable that we will die, the purpose is not to be a downer or to bring, you know, to be a, it's more to help us see that we don't have forever. And of course, if this is a Dharma teacher, the Buddha, and the people coming are coming for that kind of teaching, what it's saying is, you don't have forever, so for goodness sakes, get your priorities in order, the people in your life, and of course, most of all, your practice. So taking care of the body is precious vitality that the body has. And here, it's not to just live longer just in and of itself. Now it seems as if that's some virtue. Uh, the people uh, live till 120 in the Caucasus or in the Hunzas live. Um, I'd like have to know more about what's the quality of their life. Just for the body to, to live for a long time, I don't know, that could be a nightmare. I really don't know. Okay, it would vary from person to person. Okay, but what is, what here, the Dharma significance of this is that the energy is not squandered. In other words, uh, this, some of this comes out of the Ayurveda, which was the medical system at the time. Uh, remember, the Buddha didn't just drop from a cloud. 
he was an expression of something that had been going on for thousands of years already, different versions of the same thing. Yogis have been practicing, at some estimates, five and 6,000 years. They find little statues that are that old in the meditation posture. So humans have been trying to figure out what, it, what is this all about, what's going on here, especially in India. Okay. So um, looks like early stages of senility have set in. Where was I? I have to eat certain other... I need fish oil? Is that... What? Yes. Ayurveda. Um, sure, if you want to live long, fine. If you want to have a nice lean body, a nice butt, a nice thighs, fine. Uh, that's your business. If you want to be more attractive, there's nothing. That's your business. But what this is getting at is that uh, health here, in addition, of course, it's the quality of living. You've never heard of any of this stuff. When you're healthy, it's much easier to enjoy life. When we have serious afflictions, it's sometimes very, very difficult because it, it overwhelms our uh, whatever level of wisdom we have. Now here, what, what is being gotten at is that it can be, potentially, it can be an asset for the body to be cared for because what's, what, what's being said is that there's a certain vitality and energy that can, that's precious and has to be cared for rather than squandered. Why? So that energy can be used in the surface, service of getting free. Um, one of the teachers I had who helped me immensely was very early on, before I came to Buddha Dharma, I was involved in different forms of uh, what is sometimes called Hinduism. The teachers I had never used that term, but it's called that. Vedanta, uh, and there was one, uh, Shivananda Saraswati was someone, uh, I was studying Hatha Yoga, which is the physical aspect of yoga. And I was at an ashram, and this uh, 84-year-old man turned up from India, um, and at a, I was there for a training program, and at a certain point I saw that being with him was more valuable than what I could learn in the training program. So I just started spending time with him. And I traveled with him for a number of months. And he was traveling by Greyhound bus at 84. This was a long time ago. And uh, he had four students in the United States, three in the United States, one in Canada. And they pooled their, got money together, and sent him money for tickets, and he visited each one of them. That doesn't go on anymore. There are too many of us now. Uh, and so I spent a lot of time with him. And here is one teaching... I wrote it down, and it is burned into my consciousness. Um, what he said was that when he was a young monk uh, in Vedanta, which is a very philosophic branch, uh, people would poo-poo the body, sort of like that's anti-spiritual. You know, it's uh, we're into higher things uh, than this mere yuk body, uh, crude, coarse, smelly. You know, uh, we're going to God. And he also saw they were getting sick a lot. <laughs> and, uh, and so then he started to investigate and he started to, on his own, learn some hatha yoga and how to eat properly. And, uh, and he did that. And when I met him, uh, what he said, and he was really a very d a dedicated contemplative. I lived with him for about a month and a half. I don't know exactly how long. And we would stay at different people's homes, especially those students. And... He would just pop up out of bed and just go right into meditation 
four in the morning, two in the morning, and just sit for hours. And then he'd uh, go about whatever was next with people, very jovial and friendly and so forth. So he was a meditator. And that what he said was, he said, if you uh, take care of this body, which he learned to do, without dropping meditation or study, it's not versus, the body versus the mind, which all too often has happened in the, in the modern world, not just the West. You have the Hatha yogis who are obsessed with the body beautiful and living forever. That's a distortion. It's not yoga's fault. And then you got the mind folks, us, where our bodies are disintegrating because we're maybe not here so much. Uh, because we're above uh, all that stuff. Oh, whatever you eat is up. Sure, uh, eat all this organic, non-GMO, et cetera, et cetera, and die anyway. You know, so, and I always get to laugh. And Not here, I guess, but... <laughs> uh, so what he was saying is that if you take care of the body, and he said what he found was that you have a chance, he was not extravagant, of having a relatively painless old age. And he said some of his deepest breakthroughs came after the age of 70. And he said, and he said the reason is simple. He said, first of all, a lot of pettiness just naturally falls away. Those of you who are in that age bracket uh, with me, doesn't that happen? A lot of stuff, it's so petty. Good. Right. <laughs> not alone there. It's not out of meditation. It's just how much, how much more stupidity can I, can I get, you know, perpetuate on this strange planet? Uh, and so it's nice. And we still maybe want things and like things, but it isn't, <laughs> gotta, gotta have or I'll, or it's the end of the world. And he said, and if you have relatively, he said, and you may be relatively pain free. Relatively. He didn't say, there's no guarantee. And so he was teaching yoga and diet and, of course, meditation, and it was just one thing for him. And so that's the attitude. Now, my experience in many years now, being somewhat in the yoga world still, I teach at Kripalu and places like that once in a while, every year, really, and being in the Buddhist world, Zen and here, uh, Vipassana world a lot, 35 years or so, um, I find the Buddhists, uh, oh, I'm generalizing, and some of you may get incensed. During the Q&A, you can let me have it. Uh, so it's a cartoon, a caricature. Um, there seems to be a fear of getting attached to the body. Now, I feel that some of that comes out of the tremendous impact that the monastic life has had on lay people. Because if you're a lay person, I mean, if you're a monk, uh, then and let's say typically I've lived in these monasteries, uh, young men in their 20s when the sexual energy is very potent and it's very functional to point out how the body is, un- is ug- ugly and just full of posh urine, feces, synovial fluid and uh, whatever. You know, you could, if some of you are more medically uh, articulate, you could help me out. Uh, and that helps them, well, we're not missing anything anyway. And that, they're celibate. And there are a lot of other things. And there's a lot of fun made of people who get married or about sex. And it's functional for them because they've made a commitment to a life that's celibate. And good, that helps them. But if that's brought to us, that's not doing us a good turn. Because that, uh, to some degree, infects our sense of the, of the place of the body. Sex is not necessarily the problem. 
It's what it's our imbalanced way of relating to it, uh, etc. So um, what I found is, and it's, in this country, it's changing quite a bit. Many people are seeing that who are, let's say, Vipassana and Zen students, and they are taking better care of themselves physically. And from the other side of the aisle, to use a political phrase, uh, when I go to Kripalo, uh, some, why was I get invited there for many years, every year, sometimes twice a year. I only go once now. I said, well, what do you want me? And he said, well, we discovered we don't really know anything about meditation. You know, so we can do these incredible yoga asanas with, you know, the left toe, big toe touches the right ear, and, you know, uh, and we appear on the cover of Yoga Journal, and we have in t- tight, le- I call it leotard yoga, but anyway, uh, they have other names that are, um, Ashtanga yoga, you know, Kripala yoga, it's, it's leotard yoga. Anyway, so, um, what they discovered is, for them, meditation is at the end of a session, uh, of chanting or yoga, they'll say, and now let's meditate. And I saw this in Vedanta. And then people would sit with a holy look on their face for five minutes. Fine, let's go home now and eat. You know, um, They realized that we, we don't, and it's not the fault of yoga, and Patanjali's Yoga Sutra, and of course the uh, Upanishads are full of, they're written by deep contemplatives. So that part, it's not the fault of the teachings, it's what's been done with it. And I see uh, what's going on in the modern world, some good things. We're all studying from each other, learning from each other, and there is a growing respect for the body. And I don't think we have to fear it, but the Buddha, Buddha Dharma, there's a good reason to be careful about the body uh, because it is easy to get attached to and to cause a tremendous amount of suffering for ourselves and others. Uh, one of my main teachers was uh, an Indian gentleman named Krishnamurti. And uh, sometimes when Indian people would talk to him and start saying, oh, the body is not that important, we are not the body, and the ways of speaking like that, uh, he would listen and say, that's true, maybe we're not the body, but it's a bit like being a cavalry officer. You go into combat on your horse. You're not the horse, but you better take good care of that horse because your life depends on it. So they would get quiet. Oh. <laughs> then he'd go the other way. Someone, one time I was in the audience, and someone raised their head and they said, Krishnaji, uh, I understand you do yoga every day and pranayama and have a careful diet and so forth. He said, more, when you do yoga, you get much more energy. Isn't that true? And he said, that's right. More energy, more mischief. <laughs> so, in other words, to have a healthy, strong, energetic body that's not necessarily, from a point of view of wisdom, an asset, because it's very easy for that to be part of, instead of self-liberation, of self-expansion, self-improvement. Dharma is not about self-improvement, although some ordinary aspects of self do improve, just naturally. It's about liberation from all that. And, uh, but it does, it's not the fault of health. It's why can't we take care of the body? And the Buddha talks constantly about, um, Moderation. That doesn't seem like much, but if you understand moderation, apply it in so many situations, it's not easy to do. And it has tremendously profound, it's very helpful. Okay, so there are all these different ways in which things can go wrong, uh, but they don't have to. Let's see, I want to...
I'm such a blabbermouth. Okay. Okay, so the, the uh, protecting that life energy, that vital energy, chi or prana, some of you know these terms, uh, that's how you have the energy to work on developing wisdom and to free yourself. Uh, now, at that time, the Brahmin, okay, I'm going to skip over this. Um, what it says is that uh, the king did listen to the Buddha. So be it, Your Majesty, the Brahmin uh, uh, the king listened to the Buddha, and then here's the here's the last part, and that's the end of my the commentary. And then let's talk things over together. Then um, King Pasanadi of Kosala gradually settled down to eating no more than a cup full of rice. Don't become literal about that and go home and just eat a cup full of rice. You'll drive the people in your life crazy. <laughs> Many years ago, um, when I, I was uh, I was teaching at a, a local university, I invited Michio Kushi. I don't know if you've ever heard of him. He was a macrobiotic. He was one of the fathers of macrobiotic diet. And he came and lectured to the students about the power of diet. He went on and on. And he was very good. Uh, it's not. It's a diet that heavy. It's very similar to Japanese food, Japanese diet. And in many ways, a very healthy diet. In other ways, questionable. Um, so I got him alone after it, and I said, Mr. Kushi, are you trying to say that we can eat our way to enlightenment? Uh, and he said, he laughed. He knew I was being facetious and sarcastic. And he said, no, I'm not. He said, but very few people are going to meditate. He said, but everyone likes to eat. <laughs> so, okay, 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 you understand. But that was a long time ago. Someone reminded me uh, over this weekend, 45 years ago. And... I think there are people now who do meditate. And that doesn't mean you can also enjoy food. In, not enjoying food does not make you any holier or spiritual, in quotes, than, than, than enjoying it. That's not, where, that's not the issue. You can be well-dressed. Women, if you want to put on mascara and wear high heels, that doesn't mean that you're not holy. We've latched on to all kinds of symbols of either it's a long beard in one tradition, shaved head in another, uh, different colors and outfits and costumes. This is what a holy person looks like. No, that's what. Uh, these are all conventions made up by us humans. The essence of liberation has nothing to do with that. It's something that has to do with the heart. The freedom is inside here, and it's not what outfit you wear. Okay, it's the end of the preaching. Okay, here's, um, and so here's what the king finally closes up. He says, so King uh, Kosala gradually settled down to eating no more than a cup full of rice. At a later time, when his body had become quite slim, mm, I kind of like that. King Pasanati stroked his limbs with his hand and took the occasion to utter this utterance. So this is how the sutta ends, and, the, and the, the king says this. Indeed, the Buddha has shown me compassion. Okay, what is the compassion that the Buddha showed? He taught him how to take care of himself. In this case, locating and eating. Okay, he didn't do it for him. He didn't force feed him. He didn't supervise him. He didn't check in on him, email him every other day. How are you eating? Call him up. He taught him how to take care of himself, and the king did do it. Okay, so that was 
his way of showing compassion, in my opinion. The Buddha had shown me compassion in two different ways. For my welfare right here, and that's the obvious stuff we've been talking about, and in other words, right here and now, and also for in the future. What this is implying is that uh, this definitely un- is suggesting future lives, rebirth. What it's saying is, if you, those of you who've been here since the first two, through the first two, you understand that even eating, uh, there's a lot going on in eating, and that can include the development of wisdom in addition to caring the body, caring for the body. Uh, what, he, what he's saying is that um, the degree to which this, the activity of eating is used as a vehicle for awakening and freeing myself, uh, I will have a better rebirth because it helps me live more wisely and, and more ki- with more kindness and wisdom. So that's what he's saying. Now, in Dharma language, there's a literal rebirth means next lifetime body dies, but something continues. But it's also used in a more subtle way, which is from moment to moment, the sense of me gets born and dies, gets born and dies all day long. And so what he's saying is, uh, as the mind becomes clearer and wiser, it's able to not get caught in egocentric activity as much as it lives out its day. Um, part of why I picked this sutra is uh, to contribute in a small way to some of what we're trying to convey here at the center. Michael is doing it, Narayan, Maddie, whoever teaches here, or at least the ones who teach here regularly, that practice is not merely a collection of techniques and methods and forms. It's not simply how many three-month retreats you rack up and then you know, uh, medals, uh, you know, uh, four three-month retreats, winter of uh, 2000. And, uh, maybe you're wiser, maybe you're not. It just meant you were quiet and kept yourself out of trouble for a while. Okay, and maybe you did get it. Maybe it was wonderful. It's potentially wonderful. Okay. What we're trying to say is that it's a way of living and that the forms can be immensely helpful, maybe even a prerequisite for most of us, so that we can help re-educate the mind so that it's fit to be able to do anything resembling what was talked about tonight. And so, uh, with more and more, eating is simply can be a practice. And it doesn't mean to take the joy out of eating and uh, now you no social eating. Sorry, I can't have dinner with you uh, to your partner, husband, wife, children, friends. Uh, no, I eat alone and very mindfully. And I need uh, two and a half hours to, to eat. Uh, because as more and more it becomes natural, it's just there's a bit more sensitivity accompanying the eating with people. It's not, you don't have to make it stilted. At the first, we need all the help we can get, and that's why retreats can be helpful. Or setting aside now and then a time where you pre- we just carefully eat a meal with no time uh, limit held over you. And you just learn from see what, see what happens. Um, so the, there's a... a let me uh, finish up this way. Uh, many years ago, I saw a uh, kaiudo is a Japanese art of archery. Now, in Japan, and they had it in China too. Um, they call it a way with a, a capital W. The way of there's martial arts. The way of there's the way of tea, the way of flower arrangement, the way of calligraphy, 
the way of uh, of the bow. Okay, so what I saw, this was somebody who was a Zen master, Japanese, and also had mastered archery. Okay, so there were, we were, uh, this is, there were, I would say maybe almost 150 people. We were all on this lawn. The target was set up, and they, when they do it, he had incredible outfit on with special clothing and special gloves and uh, I don't know. I don't have names for all it, and there was a whole chanting and a huge build-up, and we're just sitting waiting. And th- there's a target, and finally, he pulls. It's a very large bow, and he was about this high, you know. But it, he pulled it back, aimed it, and we were like, <sighs> and he just shot it up in the air. Okay, what is he? A wise guy from Brooklyn? Disguised as a Japanese? He's trying to say the target is everywhere. It's, it's not limiting it to, oh, only in this posture. In some traditions, the right foot has to be over the left. No, the left has to be over the right. If you don't sit in the full lotus, you can't do it. If you sit in the chair, forget about it, hopeless. Uh, there are all these different... Uh, or um, we don't think much of what we call worldly life. Um, and what we're, the whole point is that practice... And living, living in practice, uh, as you do it more and more, they're inseparable. Because wisdom, is, the test of wisdom is not how much you memorize what the Buddha said. Uh, it's, it's, it's in your actions. The proof of the pudding's in the eating. Often that's misquoted. People say, well, the proof is in the pudding. No, the proof of the pudding is in the eating. You have to bite into it, and then you find out if it's a good pudding or not. I guess I still want some of that rice pudding. <laughs> I know I do. This evening has been very destructive for me. Okay. Hey, uh, so this is just one small example that, uh, and finally, it's not reserved to special activities like tea, archery, etc. Those were attempts to kind of halfway houses, kind of in between just everything. The, 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 the target is everywhere. It's just to whatever you do, nothing's insignificant, nothing's trivial. It doesn't mean you go through life tension. Everything is significant. Everything has dharma significance. It's, it's relaxed and alert, and, uh, and it's more a change in attitude where what the emphasis is on an interest in learning rather than in judging so much. So we'll leave with that archer, the targets everywhere. And this is just one small way of helping us broaden our understanding of what meditation is. Uh, those you have to leave now, Please do so, but I'd like to start the questioning while you're in the midst of leaving so there's enough time to... By the way, those of you who stay for the Q&A, feel it's not rude if you can only stay for 10 minutes or 15 minutes and you have to leave. Just do that. It's not rude. So what can we talk over together? Please. It's not, they're not trying to kill the ego. That's a mis- I think that's a mistake. How could, uh, in other words, there is a sense of, um, it's, but, but let's say the actions are no longer driven by this sense of who you think you are. It's not egocentric. Okay. And what's it like? It's coming from a place that's much deeper than the sense of me, which is, uh, when the Buddha talks about emptiness of self, anatta, 
It means there is there isn't a solid, enduring, self-sufficient self. And if you watch your mind, it's, it becomes quite obvious. It's a process, and uh, inconsistencies, contradictions, it's out of our control. As you watch that, that starts losing its power. And basically, who do you think you are? These are the mind keeps telling notions about ourselves, and we're working very hard to build that up who we used to be, who we are now, and who we think we'll be if we only practice hard enough. So actions will flow out of, you could say, silence, or out of stillness, or out of emptiness, out of clear mind. Maybe that's better for your purposes. Clear mind, rather than out of our old conditioning, which ego is just conditioning. Does that? Do the words make even a little bit of sense? Um, yeah. But? Um, I guess I your guess but is, but... <laughs> oh, okay. Please. I find myself challenged by like this new set of values that has come up with sitting and practicing down. And uh, old set of values that has always been changing anyways. Mm-hmm. And Finding this uh, this desire to take some action based on the old values, but then not taking any action at all, kind of not really resolving issues. But problems. you know, the heart of the pasta meditation is not living on behalf of that. That's the precepts and so forth. Uh, it's um, start with, for example. It is true that Dharma values, are in a sense, are we create a new kind of suffering for ourselves because uh, we, we're given new ways to suffer because the ego now wants to get in on it. But also, it clashes. Sometimes it's called swimming upstream. Okay, but those are just metaphors. Can you be more concrete? Tell me, uh, give me an example. See, because otherwise, here's what it sounded like to me. We have a value. I'm going to be a compassionate and wise person. Now, I used to, I just want to be a rich, successful, powerful person. I, no, those values are no good. I'm going to switch to, it's still me. It's still me is now switched outfits. Yeah, well, the story is pretty complicated and kind of blah, blah, blah. Um, See, otherwise it's too abstract. I don't want to... Get, Or a rental property, and I rent to somebody, they're doing something that violates the agreement. And a part of me wants to just say, hit the road. Uh-huh. So you feel if you're a good Buddhist, you can't say that? No, I'm not a good Buddhist, but looking inside of me, what's the motivation? And then what are the consequences? How long is it going to take me to find a new tenant? You know, really? I mean, there's, so there's a lot of other, there's more complexity than <coughs> just the hit the road okay. attitude. Um, but yeah, there is that. Uh, Where's the conflict between your old way of, let's say, you're facing this tenant, and now what you're learning about through practice? What is it that's opposed? Where's the struggle going on? The struggle is going on in the. Um, it would be wise for me to take some action to, to try to. Does that imply that a Buddhist is just passive and fatalistic? Well, I don't know. I'm, I'm 
Or forget it. You don't have to have an identification. Uh, someone who's who's informed by Dharma, by by this, the lawfulness of. Um, I don't know what's still. Uh, that's the real question. Okay. I don't, I, I don't know what's okay. Could I link this to the gentleman sitting behind you? Hi. Sure. Okay. <laughs> okay. Because let's, this is maybe we can uh, both of them can be hooked, be, become the same thing. There's something that's going that you have a tenant. They sign an agreement. Everything you said. And then you find that they violated it. Now, step number one, what does that bring up in you? If you, if you can't, as best you can recall, annoyance, anger, resentment? Yeah. Okay, okay. In a given moment, that's brought up. Practice is not abstract. You would bring awareness to that anger. Now, it's not saying you shouldn't be angry, but if you behave towards that person out of anger the likelihood is that the actions that you take, they're going to have the signature of anger on it. And then that will beget something on his side or her side. Okay, so practice is, in other words, from the point of view of Dharma, that's me. In other words, he, he signed this contract, I signed it too, we both signed it, and this is what he does to me. When we suffer, take a look at any suffering you have. That's, there's a form of suffering there for you. Okay, you'll see that it's me who's doing the suffering. Okay, now if you look into that, that starts to lose its potency, and then what's left is a clear mind. Now out of the clear mind, uh, I would trust what you say or do with this gentleman uh, more than I do out of just your conditioning or maybe you've had good upbringing, you know, to be kind to people and give them another chance. And But uh, it doesn't mean you don't act. Let me give you an example. There was a Tibetan uh, lama who actually, this used to be my apartment Friends, you're in my you're in my living room, but it's okay. Uh, and there was a, a Taratoku Rinpoche uh, lived with me for four days a week uh, when we first, the first year of the center or the second year, uh, and he and he taught uh, Tibetan vipassana. Okay, and one evening he was giving a talk on Buddhist economics, and the person very annoyed raised his hand and said. Because, you know, we're all these nice, kind, compassionate, sympathetic, joy, metta, you know, and so forth. Uh, and the person said, well, look, and I'm making up these numbers because I don't remember them. He said, I had an employer, and he promised me to pay me $800 a month. And when I started getting my paychecks, it was only $400 a month. So I thought, okay, I'll wait another month, and it was the same. And he said... So, according to Buddhist economics, what? I just, uh, may you be, you know, you know, he made a, a joke out of it, but he was clearly annoyed. And Taratoku got very quiet and he said, look, what I would do is, I would go as deeply into myself as I could, send him all the loving kindness that I could muster up, and then sue him for the remaining 400. <laughs> See, it doesn't mean that you, I'm a Buddhist, I don't do things like that. We're not, it's not training to be a doormat. Uh, but the, and I don't, I wouldn't dream of telling you what to do. But the actions that come out of a clear mind, that's what I meant by accuracy. They have much more of a chance of being wiser and kinder than just a reaction comes out of our conditioning. Do you see the difference between a response and a reaction? Out of the silence can come a, now our practice is enabling the mind to get clearer. And then what we say and do, uh, is more likely to, to be what I'm getting at. Does that make any... Yeah. So keep practicing, and if there is a head-on collision, take a look at what that's about. 
Because the main value is, are you suffering? You see, if you come here, I have to assume, I don't have to, but I do. I assume that you care about the quality of your life. Why else would you bother coming here? Air conditioning? There are other places to get it. Okay. Um, so you're here, and that means you, ca- you care about needless suffering. Why does the suffering go on and on? Anguish, emotional problems that linger and go on, sadness that I can't seem to, etc. Okay. So at a certain point, do you value learning about how dukkha comes about, suffering, unsatisfactoriness, so that you can understand it and in the seeing into and into it as it is, accurate seeing, go through it and live a life that is not so plagued by unnecessary suffering. So that's an important value. If you don't care about the quality of your life, and I would say that means you have to get to know yourself because it's you getting to know you as you live. It's all okay, Then I don't get the point. You can have all the Buddhist values are... Um, look, I was when 9-11 happened... A Buddhist magazine editor called me up and said, would you write your reaction, a Buddhist reaction, to 9-11? And um, I couldn't do it. I said, look, uh, first of all, I can't represent all. Buddhism is, you know, hundreds, millions of people with somewhat different cultures. And say, like, what I can do is tell you my what I, what happened to me. And of course it was influenced by my years of study and practice. But I can't say, speaking as a Buddhist, there are other people who can. It's just not honest for me. I can't do it. I don't know how to do that. Okay. So, but even if you say, speaking as a Buddhist, Look at the what actually is being said and done. I don't care how the, the the name tag the person puts on them, and calls himself anything. I want to see the proof of the puddings in the eating. Does the action have more wisdom in it, more kindness? What does it lead to? More conflict? Does it lead to understanding and some change in the way we live, so that uh, the quality of, our, of life changes for us and the people in our life? Yeah. Please. Um, let's see. Uh, as, as you're, as I was sitting here tonight, uh, really enjoying this talk, I, I was sort of. Then I failed if you enjoyed it. <laughs> you no, know, we all you say these great, have these penetrating insights, and I really enjoy them. Yeah. Uh, I, I can't even remember them all. You see how penetrating they are. Yeah. <laughs> so, so uh, right when the question and answer period began, you said something about. If I can remember exactly, something about how we. Let me say this. I was sitting here thinking, boy, I'm so inspired. This is so great. I'm going to go home and I'm going to, I'm going to eat better and I'm going to uh, exercise and so forth and so on. And, um, you know, get in a little better shape, take care of my body, get to know my body, and all these kind of things. And then you were saying at the beginning of the Q&A session, uh, we have all these, we make less, we worry about the past, and we make all these plans for ourselves for the future. And then you just sort of pierced this balloon that I was building up in my head of all these. What would happen as you had this beautiful uh, body of Atlas? What would happen? Oh, no, it's not that. It was more oh. just taking care of myself. I, not, I'm not yeah. Well, that just sounds sensible. But, uh, no, but um, I guess that my question is, or if you could just comment on the, the thing that you said about we make these plans for ourselves for the future. Mm-hmm. Um, I found both true and my own experience with fitness or eating right is a lot of false starts. Um, and 
And yet I, I felt like I was getting some momentum sitting here. And I was inspired. And then when you said that, it sort of burst that momentum. Not in a bad way, but can you talk about what, how one builds momentum? Yeah, but uh, help me understand, uh, go a little bit deeper. What, what burst there? I guess I felt like, oh, look at what my mind's doing. Like you brought, I, 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 or I became aware that my mind was making plans for myself. I'm actually sitting in this room listening to you talk. I'm not at home stretching or whatever I was thinking I was going to do. So I actually became aware of the operation of my mind okay. uh, planning. And then, but then I felt like, oh, uh, it sort of almost like I, I deflated a little bit in terms of what I felt like was some chance to go home and actually do that. Uh, I'm not completely clear, but I'll do the best. I'll, if I'm any more muddled, then uh, uh, let's see what comes out of this blog. Um, first off, uh, there is a role for planning and the future. It's not like, I practice Dharma, my man. There's no future. I have no past. Well, where are you from? Where would you go to school? No, nope, we don't do that. Um, it's establishing a new relationship to memory which can be friendly, but you're not, um, you don't give it this overwhelming authority or confuse it with who you are. It's a memory. The event is over, never to be repeated again. And it doesn't mean that it doesn't have, va- that it, it, it can have value. For example, I mis- distorted it for a while uh, against uh, certain, like Jewish identity, because I grew up in an immigrant community and am I American or am I Jewish? Am I Jewish or am I American? Every each day I was you know like a tennis match. I was I was battered, you know. And it took me years. Finally I had one teacher, Vimala Takar, an Indian woman, and she said, You don't have to be at war with your heritage, with your roots. It's a fact. You were born into that culture and it can give you great strength. It's just that there is more to it than that. And if you go if you meditate you realize you go beyond being Jewish or anything else you think you are. Who do you think you are? <laughs> Just kidding. All right. <laughs> what? Okay, so you, you don't have to answer it to me. It's to answer it to yourself. Yeah, exactly. Okay, this is, the Buddha spoke a lot about, what, about your question and in very eloquent and important terms. Um, craving and attachment is seen as the root of suffering. Okay. And so he listed three main kinds of craving. One craving is for nice sounds, Nice tastes, nice sights, nice smells, or it's sensual delight. A nice touch, nothing wrong with that. Okay. The second form of craving, not as obvious to us, is the craving to become. We're somehow, whoever we are, wherever we are, with whoever we're living with, whatever house we have, uh, it's not, it is something, someplace better to get to. Uh, and that is me. The me is constantly trying to enhance the story of me and my life starring me. Okay. And so we make, now that doesn't mean that you, that you're just static. Excuse me. That doesn't mean that you're static and that, uh, because you're, you can work hard and that leads somewhere. It's just that the focus is on the function of the doing. Let's take work. There's a difference between the function of carrying out your job and then the, the, all the stories the mind makes out of, up about yourself, the status, the identity. That's where the suffering comes in. What is your work? Do you mind? I'm very nosy. Okay, you're a high school teacher. A noble occupation. 
No problem there, unless your mind starts, well, if I was a college teacher, my parents would be happier. And, uh, I don't, you know, see what I'm getting? <laughs> okay, you see what I'm, okay, so the function of teaching is beautiful. There's no problems with the function of being a carpenter or whatever any of you do. But because the mind is unexamined, it creeps in there. And it, uh, I, what, what do I have to do to become principal? You, we're back to you again. Okay. And if you're doing things that you don't like to, you know, now, you might become principal. There's nothing wrong with that. It's just the journey towards becoming something else while you are just a teacher could be a lot of suffering on the way. And then you get there and then you say, this isn't what I thought it would be. And then I'll become something else. Uh, and it keeps going like that. Do you see what I'm getting at? So craving to become, even in meditation, it's very subtle. The mind will get very, very silent. And people will come into interviews and say, oh, what's next? You know, in other words, the assumption being, wow, if it's this subtle, then where is this leading? What's next? And I'm saying, you just killed it. Uh, because now you want to be- get an even better mind state than this one. Do you see? Sometimes you'll hear things like no gaining idea. In other words, you don't do this in order to get that. Uh, so that sounds like maybe that's fatalism. No. Liberation is, a, is factual. But you don't get it by keeping your mind obsessed with getting free. Now and then to remind yourself, boy, I'm really suffering unnecessarily. It might be helpful when you get uh, slack in certain ways. But the power and all the transformation, the, the, the fruit, the flowering that is possible, comes out of the clear seeing and understanding of what's happening here and now, here and now. Life is just here now, here now. So you can plan. Some, I had a plan to be here tonight. That's not where the suffering comes in. It's when we mistake. Because the mind makes up imaginings about the future, nightmarish ones or wonderful ones. And then it prefers that to what's actually happening right here and right now. Now, if the dietary stuff inspired you to do I don't know what, then that would be useful if it gets you to do it. But if you just roll around in... It's just fantasizing. You already know how to do that. Am I making any sense? Good. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.